what a great expression of the, uh, the power and might and glory of, uh, of an almighty God. In fact, um, much of uh, what was just sung is directly out of uh, God's word, uh, particularly out of the book of Revelation, which speaks of, of who Jesus is. In fact, uh, the book of Revelation, which is uh, the book we're studying, is all about who Jesus is uh, as much as um, what he's bringing to pass uh, in the future. And as we prepare to look in God's word, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for just the expression of the power and majesty and glory and honor of God um, as proclaimed in your word and our opportunity to sing it unto you now and as uh, we hear about what's coming next, our privilege of seeing that throughout eternity. And Father, might that be more than just uh, words on a page or words that are sung, might that be the expression of our relationship with you, that truly you are our King, you are our Lord, you are the one who directs our paths. And now, Father, we pray as we look in your word that you might speak into our lives, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning we had a half occasion in the first service, uh, one of our uh, young um, junior hires came, who was coming to know Christ through the ministry of the church, who got baptized, Maya uh, Morris, and as uh, she had opportunity to follow the, the Lord in the waters of baptism, uh, we, we, had a, we had to put a step stool there because she's rather small in stature. Uh, but as, as she was preparing to uh, get baptized, I, you know, I asked her the question, well, what is baptism and what's that all about? And, and sometimes even within a, you know, a church with Baptist uh, heritage, is we, we, we kind of mix that up. And sometimes the response can be, well, that's when you get your sins washed away. Well, it's not water that does it, it's the Spirit of God. And so uh, as I'm talking with Maya, you know, she's got that straight. That what baptism is, is, is an outward expression of what God has done with an inward commitment. That you want to make public and not just private. And, and, and God is really kind of big into object lessons. I don't know if you know that, but basically that's what baptism is. It is an object lesson to show the world uh, kind of a one-time thing that you've now changed teams. And you're no longer on your own team or even the evil one's team. You're on God's team. And Maya, who likes to play softball, you know, I, I said, well, you know, when you, when you put a jersey on, what's on the back? And it's the name of your team. And I said, when you get baptized, you're just making it now even more public about, you know, who, who you are. And sometimes that name's on the back and sometimes it's on the front, but either way it works. But also, you know, as you think about the ongoing opportunity that we have to proclaim who we are, it's through communion and through our daily experiences of walking with God and trying to please Him. Uh, but we have to admit, even as we come into a place like this, as we uh, talk about God at, a, you know, at church, which seems to be where, you, where people do talk about God, is that there are people who don't believe in the, the almighty, all-powerful God that we proclaim. In my life group on Tuesday night, one of our members uh, who was working said, um, you know, this week uh, people at my work said, well, you believe God is all-powerful and there's nothing too, too difficult for God to do. Can, can God... Um, make a rock so heavy that he can't what? Pick it up. And I'm saying, this isn't a new question. This question has been voiced throughout the ages, and that doesn't stump our expression of who God is or our understanding of who, who he is. The, even, though the God, even though the Bible says that with man, um, not all th uh, things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. There are some things God cannot do. You know, he, he can't make a, a square peg go in a round hole. You know, I mean, that's, he, he doesn't break the laws of, of nature that he has created. But even more important than that, 
is that the Bible says there are some things God will not do or cannot do. And there's a variety of passages. Let me just read a couple of them. Uh, God is not a man. This is Numbers 23, 19. Uh, nor is he the son of man that he should lie. And, and then in Hebrews chapter 6, 18, it says this. So that, that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God is to lie. So there, there, as you really think about who God is, it's impossible for God to be contrary or act contrary to his nature. If God is holy, does God have the capacity to be unholy? If God is truthful, does God have the capacity to not tell the truth? And the reason I share this this morning is because as we look at God's word this morning, again, it reminds us about who God is as well as what God is going to do. And who God is, he is one who keeps his promises. So if you have your Bibles this morning... Um, Turn to them and turn to the last book in the book, the book of Revelation. And, and this morning we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7. And I just want to test you a little bit. Uh, you know, s- sometimes um, in small groups I'll say, I'm glad you came today because I'm going to give you a test and all the things we've been teaching on over the last number of weeks. And they all don't give me smiles like Warren just gave me right now. They usually give me frowns. But, but I, I got some easy questions for you. Before chapter 7, there was chapter... And after chapter 7, there's chapter 8. You got 100% this morning. All right. Well, as we get into chapter 7, it, it, it kind of sets a scene that, that helps us kind of embrace the experience of John as, as he was given the revelation of revelation and as he is imparted to us. Uh, have you ever been in an experience where uh, you know, people speak too fast and you, you want them to slow down so you can think about what they just said? Have you ever had that experience? Uh, <laughs> every Sunday? Okay. Anyway, it, is that you know, sometimes people give you information and even if they talk slowly. You're thinking, man, you, you just said something I want to think about, and you're going on to something new. Well, Revelation 7 is, is kind of that pause in the midst of the avalanche of information that, that Jesus gave John. And, and there's a pause, or as some writers say, there's a kind of a parenthetical stop in, the, in what's going on. It's, it's an opportunity to, to kind of look behind the scenes about what's happening when you look at all that is happening. In chapter 6, you're, you're, if you remember, God kind of describes the what. After so much of what we had looked at was the who. The what is about to happen. And, and I'll give you one more question. Before chapter 6, there was chapter, chapter 5. Some of you didn't get that one right. Before chapter 6, there's chapter... I sometimes make sure you're still with me, all right? Chapter 5, and really where John is in chapter 5, he's in heaven. And it's as, as the... As the majesty of God is displayed there, not only as creator but as redeemer, they, they begin searching for someone, someone who is worthy to open up a book. And they, they can't find someone to open up this book and, until they find Jesus. And, and Jesus is worthy to open up this unique book that, that some describe as the title deed to this earth. And, and though God is sovereign over the universe, he, he has not manifested that in every corner of the universe in a direct way. And, and so in many ways... The Bible describes this planet as a place in which the evil one is the God of this age. But he's going to take that all back. And to take that all back, how is that going to happen? And, and this book kind of declares that. And it's a sealed book. And Jesus alone is, is, to, is worthy to open it. And as we think about who God is, God is not only the, the God who acts, 
but he is also the God who is sovereign over time. And the issue is not always what God is going to do, but when is he going to do it? And when Jesus chooses to open up this book, and each seal unleashes some details about what's to happen, we get a clue into the object lesson that's found in this book, that God is warning people. Warning people that that you need to be ready. You need to be prepared. You need to live out that you believe this is actually true. So every every seal that is broken kind of gives us a description of what is to come. And and what comes to begin with is is a period which is confusing, that will be confusing to people because it's it's a period of peace in the midst of of, of what God is going to do on this planet. But but it's a false peace. Have you read recently that even within the Islamic world, they're trying to figure out, how, how do I deal with this ISIS? And how do I do the radical part of uh, the Muslim world? And, and those who are trying to kind of indoctrinate their people to, to have the softer side of the Islamic uh, teachings uh, in the Quran, uh, they're getting a pushback on that. And, and they don't know how to solve even the, 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 the conflicts within their own religion, within their own nation. Uh, Egypt is kind of pursuing this. But there's going to come one who's going to have the answers for everything. And, and he's going to bring peace, particularly in the Middle East and, and, and in the surrounding parts of the world. But it's going to be a false peace or a temporary peace because people will push back even to the Antichrist. And, and there will be wars after peace. And this will consolidate his power in this world. But after, after the wars, uh, there will be the, the, the consequences of war where people are impoverished, and even at the both basics of needs, and, and, and there'll be famines in the land and the earth, where, where people might be able to purchase some food, but it will be a not enough to feed their entire family nutritiously. So they'll, they'll look for anything they can, even food that's given to livestock to somehow endure. And, and, and then the then result begins to, to happen. And death permeates this planet to the point where there will be one-fourth of the population that will die. And it will be through the wars, it will be through the famine, it will be through disease, and even the ravishing of animals throughout this earth. One-fourth of the population. In the midst of that, Jesus gives a glimpse of of those who will be rescued, delivered, saved, even in the midst of all the death. And then God unleashes his hand upon this earth to the point where people aren't just feeling, well, maybe we're just having a bad year. You know? Maybe we're just going through a season of life that's kind of difficult. And, and they'll realize it's the heavy hand of God on this planet. And we know because people will try to hide from God. And we closed last week's message with the last verses in chapter 6, which says in verse 15 through 17, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong, but not just those who are powerful, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of 
their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And I'm sure this is the point where, where John is, is saying, can, can you just slow down just a little bit? This needs to sink in. And I really believe that the sixth seal that's broken up in the last words that were shared here is God shakes this planet. That continues right into the point where Jesus returns. And there's more details. We look at the other judgment scribes in the trumpet and bowl judgment. That it's overwhelming as he hears about suffering and death. And the question posed, who is able to stand? What is God going to do? Well, that question is, is answered in chapter 7. And, and what I want to do this morning is kind of hang you know, the, the main truths this morning. We're, we're going we're to look at what is he going to do. We're going to look at how he's going to do it. And then I guess the question is, why do I need to know about what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. Why is that so important? It's not just simply a fascination of, of things that are almost unimaginable. Because God has a point. He has an object lesson for us that, that ought to cause us to live so much more for what's important. Well, let's look at it this morning. What is he, what is God going to do? And in, in many ways we've already seen that because... That's what chapter 6 was all about. What is he going to do? God is going to fulfill his promise to punish the wicked. In Isaiah 26, verse 21, it says this, For behold, the Lord is about to come out from this place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. Now often, you know, we don't, we don't, we don't see the, the evil that's in the world until it, it's right in front of us or somehow broadcast on network news or now with the internet you can hear every horrific story or see visions of it. But for the longest of time, people just, you know, things would happen and you just try to hide it. I think we have politicians who do that as well. Isn't that true? I mean, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. People try to hide their skeletons, don't they? But everything will be brought to the light. And then judgment will happen on this planet. God will punish the wicked. But in this chapter, we hear the good news. The other truth, and again, looking at who God is as well as what God is going to bring to pass, is God is truthful. He's faithful to his promises. And so we also know it is true. God is going to fulfill his promises to save his people. And I want to read some verses before we look at how he's going to do that. But in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, God is plain that he's going to be faithful to his promises to his covenant people. He says, uh, alas, for that day is great, the day that we just heard about in, in summary form in chapter 6. There is none like it. And again, we'll look at that passage which says, uh, there's coming a time in which it's been a time like it, like no other, in the past or in the future. And it is a time of Jacob's distress. God, again, is responding to his covenant people and bringing into culmination all that was said about them. He says it'll be time of Jacob's distress 
but he will be saved from it. The descendants of Jacob will be delivered. Romans 11, verse 25 through 27 says this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Now, it's interesting when you read the Bible. Have you discovered this is a pretty big book? This is a pretty big book. There's a lot of words in it, and there are not a lot of pictures, depending upon what version you have. And you're saying, wait a minute. You mean this is going to be on the test? Remember going to school, and the teacher was giving you all kinds of information, and then finally you go, well, are you going to test us on everything? And they say, well, okay, here are the the most important things I want you to hold on to. Well, whenever Jesus says this, whenever God's word says this, this is something that we, of all the things we don't want to miss, we don't want to miss what God says, don't miss this. For I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. You know, sometimes when I read the Bible, I go, you know, these are interesting ways to communicate what you're trying to say to us. Why is he saying so you won't be wise in your own estimation? Have you ever heard people who, who, who spend more time imparting their opinions on the Bible than the opinions of the Bible being imparted to them? And they're kind of telling what the Bible, what the Bible says rather than the Bible telling them what it says. Have you ever heard a conversation where people say, well, my God wouldn't do that. Well, I, I didn't think you were the, the one who described what God does or doesn't do. I thought God does that, Okay. Uh, and, and sometimes we, we're in that relationship with God at times where we, we feel like we're his consultant rather than he's our consultant. You ever do that? I'm, I mean, ever in your prayers, you try to tell God what he's supposed to do? Okay, we're kind of giving him advice. And, God, in case you don't know this, I, I prefer you did this and make sure that didn't happen. And, and he says, I, I don't want you to be wise in your own estimation. What he's saying is, I, I don't want you to try to tell me or think what you think might happen when I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And so he goes on, and he says some things that, that are surprising to those um, at that time, that there's a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. We need to be honest. When the, the church was first started, it was largely Jewish. And, and then there was a large um, uh, re- reaction to the Jewish people to the gospel. And then the gospel was dispersed, and... Largely, the churches in this world are populated by non-Jews. That's what a Gentile is. And, and, and if you think about why is that true? Because there's been a hardening of the heart. In fact, the Bible says that, that the gospel is a stumbling block to the Jewish people. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, just think about it. If, if you had been told that there was a Messiah coming, there's an anointed one who's going to be your King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and then all of a sudden someone said uh, it was Jesus, and then you realize, that, oh, that's the one we put on the what? On the cross. Now that, that's a rather large mistake, isn't it? And, and so they're, they're just, it's hard for them to wrap their hearts and minds around that. But there's going to come a time when God says, okay, I brought in all uh, the non-Jews into the family, and now I'm going to bring judgment upon this world. He says, then all Israel will be, what? Saved. So however you understand that, God is saying, I, I made a promise in the past, and we saw that in Jeremiah. We're going to see it in a couple other places. I'm telling you that Israel is going to get saved. This, this, what you think is a mystery, is not a mystery. I'm telling you this. I don't want you to be uninformed. I am good to my word. I'm faithful to my promises. Israel will be saved. And then he says, the deliverer will come, just as is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant, this is my agreement, this is my promise with them when I take away their sins. 
Now, now part of understanding, okay, how you look at this throughout history, has there come any time in the history of Jacob, or for that matter, any people where their, their ungodliness was taken away? That people's, as a nation, their sins were taken away? Hasn't happened yet, right? Has it happened in the United States? Are, are we devoid of any ungodliness in our nation? So, so he's saying, but there's kind of time for Jacob that will happen. And then he goes on, Zechariah, or looking at that passage, it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts of it will be cut off from the, uh, and perished, but the third will be left in it. And I will bring the third part through the fire. And this is, as we go through the book of Revelation, as we go through this, this period called the Great Tribulation, is that everyone will be affected of every nation and every tribe. There will be death throughout the land. But God says, I'm going to take a third of the nation of Israel, of Jacob's descendants, and they will be refined and pure. He, he goes on, I'll bring them through fire, I'll refine them as silver is refined, and, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, the, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. And, and so as, as John is getting this revelation of the revelation, and there's kind of a pause in the, in the midst of all the detail. Uh, he's hearing that God's going to fulfill his promises to what he said in the past and make that true in the future. Now, we haven't read a, a verse out of Revelation chapter 7 yet. Because Revelation 7, primarily what it does is, is it says how he's going to do it. Well, let's look at it. And after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. And so again, many ways God uses object lessons, some symbols, the symbols you look at very definitively and say, what do they portray? Just like baptism portrays, when you put the person underneath the water, their old life is dead. When you bring them up out of the water, they have new life in Christ. They're, they're, that's not when it happens, but it illustrates how it happens. That's We died our old life, and we have new life in Christ. And, and he's saying here, okay, what's going to happen in the midst of God unleashing his judgment? God is not only the God of action, he's the God of time. And, and there's going to be angels that are going to say, now, stop everything. And he says, you have the north and the south and the east and the west. I'm going to put an angel on all four sides. And I, I, this is what I'm portraying. They're, they're going to hold all the onslaught of the winds from the north and from the south and from the east and from the west. And everything's going to stop in terms of the judgment hand of God. Have you ever had that experience where you, uh, I'm sure none of you have ever done that, where you, you've worked on plumbing without turning off the water? Anybody's ever done that? You know, when it doesn't work so good, all of a sudden the water's going over there and you're just doing everything, you kind of hold back the, the water and you're yelling at your wife, turn off the water, go outside and turn it you know, that's, that's what the angels are doing. They're suppressing that which wants to be unleashed. And God is saying, I, I want you to get a picture of this. Verse 2. And I saw another angel, this is John speaking of what he was experiencing, ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, but was told, stop it, that was resisted saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bondservants of our God on their foreheads. 
So what God says, okay, I'm going to give you a clue as to what's going to be happening during this onslaught of the sealed judgments of God. In the midst of that, it's going to be at my time. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure that some choice people are secured and saved to do what I want them to do. And the focus of this passage is that God is going to save his people. And we're going to see not only his covenant people, Israel, but also a multitude of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. But how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to do that by saving and sealing, as we're going to read just in a moment, 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams. Okay? He's, going to, he's going to save 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And maybe we ought to say he's going to save another 144,000 Apostle Pauls and unleash them on this planet. He says, I'm going to seal them. It's like putting his mark. And again, as you think about the Antichrist, the Antichrist can be the person against Christ, you know, anti this. But it's also the person who is, who is presenting himself as the instead of Christ. And just like you're turning your pages before I'm ready to turn, but that's okay. okay no. Is that just like the Antichrist is going to put his mark on his people, you know, the 666, God's going to put his mark on people. And particularly, I would take this as he's going to put this mark on them, not only to save them, but to secure them throughout this entire period of time so that he will be, they will be their, his evangelists throughout the seven-year period of time. But who are they? Verse 4, And I heard the number of them, those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. I saw in the first service, you know, we, we have a new passage for you memorized in the month of June. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9. We're going through the gospel verses. I was really tempted to make, it, make verses 4 through 8 your memory passage for the month. I thought you'd really get blessed by, well, anyway. And, and some of you, well, who are the 144,000? Is it the Jehovah's Witnesses? No, I don't think so. Uh, is it the church? I don't think so. You know, if, if something, you know, walks like a duck, acts like a duck, and talks like a duck, it's probably a what? Duck. These are 144,000 Jewish people. And, and God is sealing them during that particular time. And, and what do I think they're doing? It, it doesn't say particularly in the text, but we see following that the result of what happened during that period of time. So I think that's a natural understanding of the passage. But I'm glad you did turn over. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus speaking, he said, Because lawlessness has increased, and during this time of great evil, people will respond in evil. Most people's love will grow cold, uh, but the one who endures the end will be saved. And speaking about, uh, this is a purging time. People will not be superficial about their faith. But then it says this, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So we know that before Jesus comes, something has to happen. The gospel has to go everywhere. Now, it is true that's what our mandate is now. 
But this mandate of the gospel going everywhere will be accomplished during this period of time. And it will be done not only by these 144,000, as I understand it, but also it will be done in a miraculous way. Turn over to Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. Because if you're, you're aware of, of the pockets of people throughout th- this, uh, this world, there, there, are, there, are, there are places where, where they call unreached people, people who, whose language is unknown to any civilized nation. They, they've never recorded it. There's, there's no way to really communicate with certain people. Uh, but, but God's going gonna, gonna to deal with that um, generic problem. In Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, we have these words. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. And we've talked before, the, the word angel means messenger. And a messenger could be an earthly messenger or it can be a heavenly messenger. You know, this one's a heavenly messenger because it's doing what? It's flying, all right? And, and I saw another angel flying to mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. There will be no language barrier. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. I was talking to Lynn right before the, the message of the service uh, this morning. And, and we were talking about a variety of different things. And we got to talking about what, what, what was your motivation to come to know Jesus. And, and her motivation was exactly the same as mine is when I heard the gospel as a young person, and I heard about the love of God, heard about the, the mercy and kindness of God and all that, but then I also heard about heaven and hell. And all of a sudden, this was more than just a, a story that I could appreciate that was kind of a fun story to hear. I realized this was a matter of life and eternity. And, and I wanted to be rescued from the judgment that was to come. And, and during this period of time, the love of God will be expressed everywhere but also the warning of the judgment of God. And there'll be a multitude of people that respond to the gospel. Now, why do we know that? Turn back to Revelation chapter 7. God will not only save his his covenant people, his his people that he had given the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would be their people, he would be their God, he would set up a kingdom for them. He will save Jacob's descendants a third of them at least at the end of this period of time. But he will save everybody who responds to the message of Christ during this time. God is going to save a multitude of people of all races worldwide. Look at verses 9 through 17. And after these things I I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and of all tribes and people and tongues standing before the throne, and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, in palm branches, or in their hands. I think I mentioned to you either last week or the week before, I really think the, the, this world's greatest revival will be during the period of God's greatest judgment. The, the, the Bible says that the, 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 straight, the, the street is narrow and few will go upon it. And, and the vast majority of people on this earth will still be in rebellion to God. But there will be so many more that will still respond to the gospel. And the commentary in this passage, there'll be so many that you can't even count the numbers. Have I told you I got a granddaughter? Have I told you that yet? You know, she's, she's learning to count. You know, one, you know, two, and four, seven, you know. 
Um, she's up to about 10. You know, that's about as far. But as you look at the sea of people in the midst of the billions of people that populate this planet, there will be so many trophies of God's grace and mercy that will respond to the warning of God as well as the love of God. And they'll be clothed in a white garment. Again, God is great with object lessons, whether it be baptism or communion. You know, and, and you know, you can put on clothing that, that's clean, but you know, all it has to, you know, let's say, you, have you ever done this, guys? Maybe uh, they used to have, uh, I'm really dating myself, they used to have um, ink cartridges, pens, you know. Remember those? Remember the ink cartridge? You know, if you ever, ever, you know, put that in your pocket or put that in your pocket, you know, and it, it would leak, you know, you, you'd have a pretty good spot on your, on your, on your shirt. And, and you're, your clothing could be spotless except for one spot. And everyone's attention is brought to that spot, isn't it? But when we get to heaven, we're, we're going to be truly clean. And God will not dress us in the rags of our own unrighteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And our response will, will, will take palm branches like pom-poms. And we'll be just like cheering for God. And it says, and they cry out with a loud voice. And again, loudness, I think, has the idea of enthusiasm, saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and, and to the Lamb. They, they remember the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And, and there is no greater point of praise than thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. And when they're there, that's all they can think about. God, you rescued me. And it says in verse 11, And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. You and you alone are worthy. Same. Verse 12 is interesting. Normally when you talk with God in prayer, you close it off with a, a one word that begins with the letter A, and it's the word what? Amen. But what we have here is that as they speak to God, this is saying, and we don't know if, if that's just a generic term to say they were also singing it as they said it, but they begin with amen. And if you haven't read the passage recently, they end with it as well. And really, amen can be so be it, but it also has the idea of truly, tr- what I'm saying now is true. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might to our God forever and ever. This is true. And what you need to understand, what they're saying of God, He is the one deserving of all thanks. That's what we say, giving Him thanksgiving. He is the, 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 the one deserving to be claimed with wisdom because He is the one who is a resident one who is wise in all things. and He is the one we ought to proclaim as being powerful because He has more power than anyone. Then in verse 13, then one of the elders answered, saying to me, this is the elder speaking to, to John, who's getting this kind of pause in the midst of all the details of the judgments of God, seeing God is going to be faithful to his promises because God is faithful. He is one who always tells the truth. And he's going to punish the wicked, but he's going to save his people. And he, he asked John the question, well, those who are clothed in white robes, who are they and where have they come from? Now, have you ever asked, had someone ask you a question you knew they already knew the answer? Why are you asking this question? You know what the answer is to that. And, and they ask the question because they want to emphasize the answer, don't they? Okay, here, 
do you really know what's going on here? You know, and they go, oh, yeah, I guess I ought to be thinking about what's going on here. And so Eller knew the answer, but he asked, asked John, and John knew he knew the answer because in verse 14 says, And I said to him, the elder, My Lord, you know. And so the elder responds, and he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, he could have said, you know, these are the Christians in the churches that are now up here. But I think that those Christians were already up there. But it, this, this, this period of time, which is like no other time it's ever been or will be, there's going to be people during that time who will be rescued and delivered. This is the good news in the midst of the heartbreaking news of God's judgment being unleashed on this earth. And he goes on, verse 15, For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. You know, I'm often asked, a lot of people are asked, well, what are we going to do in heaven? Are we going to be on a cloud, and are we going to be playing harps? And, you know, what's this all about in heaven? Is, is it going to be one long worship service where we're going to be singing, you know, constantly? Well, it says we're going to be serving him, and that's basically God has a to-do list for us. We're going to be doing things for him. And the temple we know in heaven is, is, is really not a physical temple. It's, it's God's presence, which will be throughout the universe. And God's going to have stuff for us to do. And we're going to be delighting in what he's calling us to do. We're serving him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. This is an interesting word. The word tabernacle was used of Jesus when he came here in John chapter 1, verse 14. Um, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Then he, and that idea of dwelling among us, he tabernacled among us. Which means he pitched his tent here on earth and we saw him in his manifest presence. And throughout eternity we will be tabernacled with God where he will be near. And then, he, then he, the elder describes what these people have been rescued from. They will hunger no more, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. And so even the, the Reader's Digest version of the judgments that have come in chapter 6, which will be detailed even further, particularly the last judgments, and the words that come, uh, I want you to understand that what they've endured already for the sake of Christ, responding in faith and then martyred for the faith, that the suffering that they've experienced will be no more. And then finally, he closes this chapter. For the lamb in the center of the corner of the throne, for the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, there's so many marvelous things in God's word. And, and even as I've had the privilege of kind of being a lifelong student of this book in, in so many you know, different ways. Uh, there's so much of the book I, I, I just wish I understood so much better. Um, but it, it's just, a, it, it's just a, a treasure field of truth. But I, I'm just like all of you. There are passages that are, are so much more filled with just glory and, and, and promises that just you know, comfort your soul. You know, out of the 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, you know, there's one that's become a, a treasured psalm for the majority of people. It's the 20, what's the number, 20, uh, 
23rd Psalm, right? And the Bible says here, as we describe heaven, that, that he will be your shepherd. And, and the Bible says in the beginning of that first line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, I shall not want. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a, often a lot of wants. Not always needs, but I have a lot of wants. And, you know, I, I, and there's some things I say, well, God, if I want this, why don't I get it now? Okay. And often he says, well, you don't really need what you want, and it really wouldn't be good for you if you got what you want. Have you ever thought about that? Some of the things we've wanted in life, we ought to be so thankful we never got them. What a ruin our life would be if we got everything we wanted. But when we get to heaven, the 23rd Psalm will be experienced in its fullness. Even as that psalm ends, surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life forever. And so as, as we look at who is coming and what is coming, there's coming not only the judgment of God, but the, the rescuing power of God to fulfill his promises to his covenant people Israel, to save them in the end, and then to save a multitude of people who will turn to him rather than from him, who won't run away but run in his direction. Well, that's what is going to happen, and as I see it, how it's going to happen. It's going to happen through those 144,000 Apostle Pauls or Billy Grahams. It's going to happen as God, in his, in, in his miraculous way, sends even heavenly messengers presenting the gospel to every place and corner in every life on this planet. Well, why do we need to hear this? Let me close real briefly with this. In Hebrews chapter 2, we have these words, and I've quoted them in the past, but let me just read to you. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says this, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. And, and see, that's, that's the challenge of, of God's Word. It's one thing to read it, to study it, even to understand it, and then pay attention to it is the next, next step. And, and why is that so important that we pay attention to what we know is true in God's Word, whether we've heard it the first time or the hundredth time? And he says, so that we might not drift away from it. And then later on he says, and let's not neglect so great a salvation. And I, and I put in your outline this way. You know, why do we need to hear about what we're studying in the book of Revelation? Among other things, we need to make sure of our salvation and not spiritually drift. I often say in services, in memorial or funeral settings, you know, we, we think more about life at death than any other time in life. Don't we? Because we realize this, this life is so that quick. And whether it's because our life ends here for physical reasons or, or Jesus returns, life happens fast. And so we need to make sure that we have what we've heard, that we really know Jesus, not just about him. And on the other hand, and, th and this is the context in Hebrews chapter 2, because before Hebrews chapter 2, there's Hebrews chapter 1. And it's speaking about the superiority of Christ over anyone and anything else. And he said, don't drift from that. Don't drift from the one who is more important than anything this world has to offer. So as we go through God's big object lesson in the book of Revelation, it's a warning to us to make sure we have that which gives us salvation and then not drift. And then the closing passage is found in Ephesians chapter 5. 
Also, why we need to hear this is so that we might use our time wisely. Therefore, be careful how you walk. And the word walk is an object lesson for live. Be careful how you live, not as unwise men, but as wise. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Use your time wisely. Invest it in that which will last. Make sure every relationship that you have is one you're investing in and pointing them to to know Jesus and then to to know him deeply and to to live for him. This this time here is preparation for eternity. And so we want to be faithful in serving him now. Let's pray. Father, we... We are so grateful that in the midst of the storms of judgment that you held back the winds of judgment so that you could seal and save those who would represent you so powerfully during this period of darkness and bring light to people, your people, Israel, and to every other nation and tongue and tribe. And Father, might we be about your work now, living for you, not spiritually drifting, but anchored and then being sent out to be your ambassadors to others. Father, help us to know not only what you're going to do, but know who is doing it, and then be motivated to live out your plan for our lives. And we praise in Christ's name. Amen. As we close this morning, we invite you to